0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. That you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him.
0: All right, good morning, City on a Hill, in Melbourne. Uh, why don't we pray and we'll ask God for his help as we open up his word. Oh, God, we thank you that you have done these dramatic signs through Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we explore them this morning and for the next seven weeks, Lord, you would continue to show us these extraordinary things and give us eyes of faith to see that they do signpost us to your glory and your power and your wisdom and your wonder. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to read your word with eyes of faith this morning, Lord. Encourage us, we pray, in your name. Amen. Well, wow. City on a Hill, Melbourne, it is so good to be back with you. My name is Ben. I am the lead pastor of City on a Hill, Ballarat. Uh, woo! But once of this church, it's so good to be back with you. I thought just as I get underway, I'd share a little bit about what is happening in Ballarat. A QBU. Is that all right if we do a QBU? Quick Ballarat update. Uh, let me show you what's going on. We've got some photos on the screen. Look, firstly, I want to say a massive thank you. Uh, we feel so blessed and very much sent from City on a Hill, Melbourne, we are so appreciative of your prayer support, of your visiting of us over the last few months, of your financial support. It is a, a blessing to be sent out from this church. Uh, here's what's happened over the last few months. We started our Sunday gatherings in the middle of July, and there were about 40 of us or so in our little launch team, and we thought those 40 people would be kind of the church for a few weeks, few months after that. but word got out pretty quickly, and we doubled in size within that first month. There were 80 people coming to church in Ballarat. Now those numbers have come down a bit. We're sort of con- consolidating, uh, building our teams, building our ministry rosters, uh, growing in depth and maturity. Uh, and we're looking forward to a, a day, a date in the calendar in a month's time on the 10th of December. We're going to celebrate our commissioning service. That's when the movement, the City on my Hill movement will formally recognize us as the 10th church, no longer the nine and a half or nine and a something. We will be the 10th church. Uh, and we're looking forward to celebrating all that God has done in us and through us and, and we pray will continue to do uh, through us in the city of Ballarat and we'd love you to keep praying for us. Uh, keep praying that God would draw new people in. Keep praying that God would raise up new leaders. I keep praying that God would provide a new home for us. We're in a a terrific little community center, but it won't be home forever. So pray that God would would provide somewhere for us better than we can even imagine. We'd love you to pray for us as we look forward to that big day on the 10th of December. We're uh, we're trusting Jesus that he's going to keep building his church. He's going to keep growing us in size and maturity. And he's going to keep doing that here as well. Now, speaking of Jesus, I am so excited today because we are starting seven weeks where we're going to take a good long look at Jesus. Uh, He's going to do some extraordinary things in this gospel of John. Seven signs or seven miracles in this book. He's going to turn water into wine. We've read about that already. He's going to walk on water. He's going to feed those 5,000 people, like Anash said, with just a little boy's lunch. He's going to heal with with just a touch and with just words. And he's going to raise his friend from death to life. These are extraordinary things. Or are they? These stories are stuck in our culture's consciousness. I'm sure you've heard of some of them before. But maybe you're here and you're asking, does anyone actually still believe this stuff? Does anyone really believe that Jesus did these things? (laughs) Maybe you're here as a skeptic or maybe you've grown up in the church and you've heard these stories a million times before. And and sure, you're kind of open to them being possible, but but they've lost their, their wonder. They've lost their meaning for you. What do you make of the miracles of Jesus? Wherever you are on that spectrum, we are so glad you're here. And cards on the table here at City on a Hill, we are convinced they did actually happen. Jesus really did these things. And so as we explore them for the next seven weeks, our hope, our prayer is that you will see Perhaps for the first time, or maybe you'll see again for a fresh time that, that Jesus is true and beautiful and relevant for our life now. So we're going to look at this first sign together. And with my ode to Pastor Guy Mason, we're going to tackle this with three acts. Are you with me? We're going to do three acts. Act one is here. We got some big names and big claims, big names and big claims. We need to set the scene as we start out in John's gospel because we are a long way from the Proverbs, which we finished last week. We're, we're still in Israel, but we're forward a few hundred years. We're in the first century AD. Uh, we're in a land that is Jewish by religion. It's under Roman occupation and it's heavily shaped by Greek culture and thinking. And it's now that, that the man Jesus steps onto the stage of human history. Uh, John is the author of this book, this gospel. Gospel just simply means good news. John is one of Jesus's closest friends. Now he never names himself in the book. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And for the last three years of Jesus's life, he gets a front row seat into everything Jesus said and did. He, he walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He slept next to Jesus for those three years. And by the end of it, he's so utterly convinced that Jesus has changed the world for good that he has to share it and so he writes down his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus uh, that John spent with him. Now, there are three other eyewitness accounts of Jesus. There's Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, they're kind of straight chronological biographies. But but John, John hits different. John's got an eye for the artistic, right? If he was making a movie, he would have... Long, slow, lingering shots of Jesus speaking and, and Jesus in conversation and Jesus in action. He goes for quality, not quantity, in what he chooses to share because he's going to make some big claims. And he starts it off in John chapter 1, verse 1, with his first big name. He calls Jesus the Word. The the logos is the Greek word. He's God's self-expression. God revealing himself to the world, showing what he's truly like in a way that we can understand in in human form. Jesus, the word, was with God from the beginning of time because Jesus was, Jesus is God. That is a huge claim straight out of the gate for John. I don't know if you saw the, the massive claim for divinity hanging in the, the shot tar outside as you came in, the perfume that is divine. Well, this is even bigger than that. He's claiming that Jesus is God. And then he follows those claims up with chapter two to 11. That's where he has the, the signs of Jesus, the, the miracles. They're all about backing up these claims. And then the, the last half of the book, chapters 12 to 21, with these, this is where we focus on the glory of Jesus with his death and resurrection. And then at the end of it all, at the end of the story, John tells us why he's sharing this tells us his point. And it's so important we see this from the beginning. I'm going to read it for us. It's going to be on screen. John 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are John's biggest Names and biggest claims about Jesus—that that that he is the Christ. That's what he wants his readers and you and I to believe. This this title is a, a Greek title. It's it means that he is. God's anointed one, God's chosen king, God's promised redeemer and and rescuer of his people. It's a word drenched with Old Testament references. That's the part of the Bible before Jesus was born. And it's laced with these promises of a a Christ, a, a Messiah is another word you'll see, meaning the same thing promises that God would send a a great liberator of his people from bondage and oppression and one who would usher in this era of peace and prosperity for God's people. But there's more. Jesus is more than than a mere man or a, a good teacher or a social activist. He's the Christ and he's also the son of God. That's John's next big name. He's he's God's son, God in human form. He's God's most perfect revelation of himself, most accurate representative on earth. Here is the, the creator of the universe showing us what he's like in a way that we can appreciate in human form, experiencing life like you and I do. He's son of God. But John's still not done. You, you see, his purpose is not so that, so that we believe. And that believing is kind of some agreement to, to some facts about Jesus. It's not some uh, academic assent to propositions about Jesus. No, no, he wants more for us. He wants us to believe. And look what he says, that by believing, you may have life in his name. The stakes couldn't be higher, right? By believing you may have life. That, that is an offer of life beyond death. It is an offer of life beyond the grave because this is an eternal God who's offering us this life in a new heaven and a new earth with new bodies, bodies that aren't tarnished by pain and brokenness and ultimately death. It's life forever, but it's also life that starts now. Life, Jesus will say later on, to the full. That is life full of joy and satisfaction and contentment, even when the circumstances of our life go up and down, as they do. I don't know what's brought you here today. I don't know what mood you've come in today. I don't know what level of skepticism you have today, but that offer of a a fuller, more abundant life that has to appeal to all of us, doesn't it? That's something we're all looking for, aren't we? I know I want this fuller, more abundant life. And in these last few months, I, I feel like I've tasted it afresh again. Lots of you have done this. We moved to a new city so we left our family, our friends, our kind of support networks behind here in Melbourne. And, and I'll be honest, I've been feeling the loneliness of that. Like, yeah, sure, it's only an hour and a half away, but, but actually it's a long way when you're not seeing people day in, day out. And you're feeling that isolation. Well, do you know, I've just found such sweetness again in the companionship of Jesus. Knowing that he is with me. When I read his word, he's speaking to me when I'm opening up the Bible. When I'm praying, he's listening to me. No matter what it is I'm praying, and he's also praying for me. That's such comforting news. To know that he is my strength when I feel weak, and I have felt weak. To know that he never leaves me. Wow, that's such sweetness in knowing Jesus is with me, and having this reminder of life with him. This is the life that's on offer to all of us, life to the full. And so as we open up John's gospel and we look at these seven signs, that's what's on offer for you, afresh or maybe for the first time. Big names here from John, big claims. But if they're true, they're life-changing. That is Act 1. Here is act two, uh, make-believe or miracle. Make-believe or miracle. Uh, There's a photo on screen of a man called Count Alessandro Cagliostro. This man is an Italian adventurer and alchemist from the 18th century, self-proclaimed healer because his claim to fame was that he created the elixir of life. He created this potion that if you drank it, if you took it, well, you would, you would stay forever young. And like any good businessman, he had a side hustle. He would practice mystical rituals and, and in so doing promise you miraculous healing. Now, I'm guessing you've never heard of Cagliostro. Anyone heard of him? Good, no one. Uh, he's faded from the pages of history because you see, it turned out, now brace yourself, turned out, that his elixir of life didn't actually work. Can you believe that? It, yeah, believe it or not, you took it and you actually still got older? And the miraculous mystical healing that he promised, well, well they didn't happen. And so he has faded from view. He bounced around the Mediterranean and eventually the authorities caught up with him and he was arrested and exposed as a fraud in Paris. We often think of people in the past being kind of more gullible than us, more susceptible to being sucked in by charlatans and make-believe magicians like Cagliostro, but but they exposed him as a fake. But I wonder if that's what you think about Jesus, that he's no more more than a, a charlatan, a make-believe miracle worker. Is that what you think? Let's take a look. I know we're like halfway through, but if you've got a Bible, open it up with me to John chapter 2. It's going to be so helpful for you to be there with us. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have some, I think, down here at the bottom of the aisles. We'd love to give you one, grab one at the end of the service. If you've got a phone, come with me to John chapter 2. Uh, verse 1 takes us to a wedding in Cana. This is a a town about 13 kilometers from Nazareth where Jesus grows up. Jesus' mother is there. Uh, Jesus is there at this wedding. And so are his first disciples. And and straight away, that's interesting, right? Hands up if you've ever been to a wedding. I'm guessing a few more of us than knew who Caliostra was. Yes, we have been to weddings. And they're celebrations, Right? They're full of life and joy and good food and good wine and friends. They're they're real moments of celebration, aren't they? Often you see Jesus in classical art looking somber and and serious. And, And sure, he has moments like that. But here he is doing his first miracle, his first sign, and he's at a party, he's at a wedding. He's letting his long blonde hair down. Little art history joke there. Want have I over your head? That's all right. <laughs> he's having fun. That's the point. He's at a wedding. And as such, he's endorsing marriage, right? I'm no surprise that he is because marriage has been part of the fabric of humanity since the beginning, since Genesis 1 and 2. And, and who was there in the beginning putting the whole thing together? Well, Jesus was. John's already claimed that. So Jesus is not a a monastic cut off from the world. He's immersed in the world. He's enjoying life. And so should we. We mustn't forget that there is much of life that is to be enjoyed. We will have somber and serious moments. Of course we will. But when was the last time you stopped to smell the roses? Or took a walk of an evening in Melbourne and and smell the jasmine at night. It's beautiful. When was the last time you enjoyed a a moment of celebration with good friends or a good meal and you pause to give thanks to the giver of these good gifts? It's Jesus. We mustn't let life just pass us by. There is much to be enjoyed. And so Jesus was enjoying it at this wedding, but... Disaster strikes. Uh, The bridegroom is hosting this wedding, and he obviously hasn't put enough money away for this wedding because they run out of wine. Now, we're in an honor-shame culture here with Jesus. Uh, I've been to at least two parties with my Sri Lankan in-laws, another honor-shame culture, where we have almost run out of food. And I can tell you there was mass hysteria at that prospect And it was the talk of the town for months afterwards that we dodged disaster. So to run out of wine at a wedding in small town Israel, that is social suicide. And so Jesus and his mom, they have this back and forth. She wants him to help. He gently rebukes her. You can see what he says in verse four. Woman, why? Well, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that sounds rude to us. It is a rebuke, but it's not meant to be rude. It's a reminder that, that Jesus is in control of his circumstances of life. It's a reminder that he has a purpose. This talk of his hour, his, his time pulses through John's gospel. And it reminds us that, that the crescendo of why he came is this R, and it refers to his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation back into glory to be with God. That's his purpose, and and he won't be hassled or harassed into hurrying up on his agenda, even by his mom. But look, he is a son who wants to help his mother, and so when she brushes off that little rebuke and tells the servants to do what he says, uh, he does, and the stage is set for this first sign. Uh, At the wedding venue, there were six stone jars used for rites of purification. That's part of an old Jewish law and custom. We're we're at a wedding, uh, all the guests and even the utensils, the things you're eating with and drinking with, they need to be cleansed. That's ceremonially washed before the big event. Headline here, they're part of old Jewish law and custom. Jesus tells the servants to fill them with water. And that's a lot of water, 20 or 30 gallons each. That means nothing to me. Think about it as five or six baths worth of water. That's how much water would be needed to fill these jars. It's a lot. And so the servants filled them up to the brim, completely full with water and then Jesus says, now take some, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, the head waiter. Come down with me to verses nine and 10. Let's read this together. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The water has become wine as they draw it out and take it to the head waiter. And not just goon, right? No, no wine from a box for Jesus. This is the finest wine that is served at the wedding. The, the master of the feast is surprised that he's, the bridegroom's done it this way around. Normally you would impress your guests with the good stuff, the expensive stuff. Uh, when they've had too much, then bring out the cheap stuff. But he does it the other way around. He saves the best to last. Uh, did you see this little detail that we, we almost might miss it? He, the, the headwitter, he didn't know where it came from. But John tells us the servants knew. This hasn't happened in a quiet corner with no one watching so Jesus can do a little abracadabra and a sleight of hand and replace the the water jars with wine jars that he'd prepared earlier. No, no, these servants have filled these jars bucket by bucket with water. They know that water went in because they put it there. And they know now that water's not coming out but wine is coming out. They know who is responsible We're going to see Jesus doing these miracles, these seven signs, with lots of eyewitnesses. Lots of people who could disprove the claims that his disciples like John are making as as just make-believe fantasies of a few delusional followers, but that doesn't happen. One of the key reasons Jesus doesn't fade away into history as a fake, like our friend Cagliostro is the strength of belief in the people around him. They were convinced that what they saw was Jesus actually doing miracles. The, The disciples, like John, they see every miracle all the way up to his resurrection from the dead. That's the most stupendous one of all. And they're convinced it happened. They're convinced that it was true, that Jesus really did these miracles, that they, they then commit their lives to sharing it. In fact, they even die to share these stories. Now, if they had any doubt, if they had made this up, at some point in their life, they would have packed it in, they would have retired quietly to the beach and give it all up. But that's not what happens they're convinced that what Jesus was doing was miraculous and that it authenticated him as the very son of God. And and that gives these stories genuine historical credit. Here's Christian historian John Dixon. He says this. Virtually everyone involved in the academic study of Jesus, regardless of their skepticism about miracles generally, is happy to conclude that in the case of Jesus the evidence establishes that he did things which those around him considered to be miraculous. That is a conclusion without parallel in the study of antiquity. In other words, the people around Jesus, and this was unique for Jesus in antiquity, people like John, who saw what he did, they were convinced that what Jesus was doing was miraculous. They believed When they saw these deeds, they believed that Jesus really did turn water into wine. But what about you? What do you think? This leads us to our third and final act, a glimpse of his glory. Here's a a working definition for miracles in the Bible. They are amazing works of God that act as signposts to his power. Amazing works of God that act as signposts to his power. So never does Jesus do any miracle as some kind of supernatural flex. There's always a point. Come with me to verse 11. This, we read the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee real place and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The sign displayed his glory and the disciples believed. No, the greatest display of Jesus's glory that is still to come when he dies and rises from the dead and is exalted to be with his father and even more to come when he returns in glory To make everything new. That's the hope we hold on to as Christians. And that will be glorious. But there is still glory here to be seen. There is still this glimpse. Firstly, because who else but God could turn this vast quantity of water into fine quality wine. It's It's an extraordinary event. Millions of Christians from then until now all over the world are convinced that Jesus did these miracles. And they back up the claims that John is making, that he is the son of God. They prove that claim. Secondly, uh, this turning of water into wine is a glimpse of his glory because of the nature of this sign. Uh, Here's where we need a little bit of help from the Old Testament. Again, John uses the turns of phrases and titles and images that are dripping with Old Testament history from Israel. And his original readers, those Jews that are listening to this, they'll be nodding along, getting all the references, getting the in-jokes. And so we need a little bit of help. Here's the background on this one. Jesus didn't turn the water into Coke or juice or anything else. He turned it into wine because the Old Testament is scattered with promises of a messianic age, a time, a day when God's Messiah, God's Christ, God's chosen king will come in and usher in this new era of prosperity and peace and and proximity to God. And, And one of the markers Of that time, that day, well, here's the prophet Amos promising a day when mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. The prophet Joel speaks of threshing floors full of grain and vats or containers or jars overflowing with wine. And here's a beauty from Isaiah 25. We're going to read it. It's too good not to. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces uh, and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. These are the promises that point us to the significance of this first sign. So when Jesus provides this abundance, this overflow of wine at the wedding, he's saying, I'm the one that's been promised. This day has come. This new age has begun. It's over the old and in with the new. The old way of coming to God, that old way of following customs, ritually washing yourself and everything else to come before God so so you didn't bring any impurity before him. Well, that day is finished. It's complete. It's, It's filled to the brim. Now, in this new day, now you come to God, not by washing yourself, but trusting that you have been washed. By the blood of Jesus, the sin, the mess, the, the dirt we pick up in the, the day-to-day of life, the dirt, the mess we cause with our sin, that is cleansed and washed and we are made clean by Jesus. He allows us to come before God. Now we come through his Messiah, through Jesus. We have uh, access to God like we've never had before. As humans, now there is more glory to come, but this is glorious now. This is more than just a glimpse to to know God through Jesus, to be known by God through Jesus, fully known and yet embraced and invited to be his children. That is glorious. So we're invited to come near to taste this new wine, to see that the Lord is good. Listen, John's made some big claims here and he's going to keep making these claims. Week after week, we're going to see them layer upon layer for him of of proof of who Jesus is. And he's going to keep asking us the question every single week, do you believe Do you believe? Maybe you do, but there are doubts. There's there's wobbling. Maybe there's even a little bit of distrust in his goodness and his power. Of course there is. We all have seasons in our life of of doubt and uncertainty and, and where we waver. That's why we can pray the prayer that Jesus affirms. Lord, help me with my unbelief. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Uh, My prayer is that this series for us as a church is a season of of growing belief, of convincement, if that's a word in, in the power and the authority of Jesus for us as a church. Imagine what will happen when we more fully trust that he is powerful and he can do all things and listen, if we do believe, if we are convinced, if we do know that we have this life to the full that Jesus promises, well, well, let me ask you this. Who are you sharing that with? Who are you passing this joy onto? Who are you gonna to invite to church through this series? It is tailor-made for you to introduce someone in your world to Jesus, to these claims that we're making about Jesus, to have this life By believing in Jesus. Who are you going to invite to come? Who are you praying for habitually, consistently, repetitively? That they would come to know this Jesus. Believe in him and have have life with him. Who's it going to be? Let me chat with you if if you're here and you don't believe what these claims say about Jesus. There might be a hundred reasons holding you back, right? And I get it. It takes faith to believe that this really could have happened. No amount of historical arguing or, or looking at the historical evidence is going to convince you. I get it because it takes faith to believe that this happened. And that it says that Jesus is really the son of God. That takes faith. And if that is you, I want to plead with you, come back next week. Come and get another little glimpse of his glory. Come and see again in a different way that he is good. And come back the week after that and keep coming. See how good he is. And let me say this to you. Faith doesn't start when we get all our questions answered. It doesn't begin when we can tick off all the questions on our list about God and about why things are the way they are. You ask any Christian in here and they'll tell you they live with questions about what God has done, is doing and will do and, and why things are the way they are. Faith doesn't begin when you get all those answers. No, in fact, faith begins with a question itself. It begins with the question, well, what if this is true? What if Jesus really did these things? What does that mean for my life? And then it's followed with a a prayer. A prayer that goes something like, Jesus, I want this life that you are offering. I don't believe everything that I'm reading. I don't believe yet everything that I'm seeing or all these claims about you, but I believe that I cannot find life to the full anywhere else. I'm sorry that I keep looking somewhere else. And I believe I might find that life with you. That might be your prayer today. We're going to keep asking every single week, do you believe? And if there's even just a shred, the slightest shred of possibility that, that yes, you might, that's the first step on a lifetime of growing in faith. We're going to share a spiritual meal, a symbolic meal in a moment we call communion. It's a meal of bread and wine or or wafer and juice. And we share it as Christians, as churches, because Jesus gave it to us for lots of reasons. He gave it to us as a reminder to enjoy the good gifts of this life, our daily bread and the things that he has provided for us, not just to, to be sustained through life, but to enjoy life. We call it communion because we share it together. We encourage one another as Christians to keep holding on to this belief that Jesus is who he claims to be. And we share it because it points us forward to a day when Jesus will come back and we will see the full display of his glory. So if you're still skeptical, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, well, this is a moment for you to stay where you are and to weigh up these claims and where you're at with them. But if you do believe, even if today is the first day, you've got that little shred of of belief that this might be true. If you're ready to take that first step of faith, well, you are welcome to come and join us at these tables here at the front to, to share this meal with us. Everyone is welcome who believes in Jesus. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to say anything special. You just come down with all the other people that have come down and you taste this bread and this juice and be reminded or to see for the first time that when we taste life with Jesus, we can know he is good. He is glorious. Life with him won't have all the answers. It won't be a smooth road But life with him is life to the full. And so if you're wavering, if you're wobbling in that relationship with Jesus, come and taste afresh that he is good and he's providing for us. He loves us. Come and see that he is good. I'm going to invite the band up as we prepare to share communion together. I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to read from a little bit of the Bible later on from John to remind us why we share this meal together. Then I'll invite you to come down and we'll share bread and wine and know that the Lord is good. Will you pray with me? Sitting on the hill. Jesus, we thank you that you are good. Thank you, Lord God, that you sent Jesus into this world so that we might taste your goodness. we might know what your provision, we might know what you are like and, and you would know what we are like. And you yet still invite us to come before you to share this meal with you. Lord Jesus, we pray for anyone here who's taking that first step of faith today, who's saying, I want this life that you're offering. I don't yet believe everything that I'm seeing or everything that I'm reading, but I believe that I cannot find life to the full anywhere else and I might find it with you, Lord. Bless that first step of faith for these people today. Encourage them to keep putting one foot in front of the other and following you in a lifetime of faith. And Lord, I do pray for anyone who is struggling to put that next step down, that next foot in front of the other one to keep walking in this way of faith with you, Lord. Would you encourage us today? Would this be a reminder of your power and your goodness? Would we be refreshed as we share communion together? Would we know afresh your provision of all these good gifts for life? And Lord God, for those of us that are confident and convinced in what Jesus has done and in who he claims to be, would we be bold and courageous in sharing that with the people around us? Would we be bold in holding out the invitation to come to church, to come and meet this Jesus, to come and believe and to have life in his name. We pray, Father God, that you might refresh us even today with the life to the full that you offer us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast.